Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Joseph James D'Angelo is facing 13 homicide charges and 13 charges of kidnap with intent to rob in connection with the Golden State Killer crime spree. While law enforcement believes him to be responsible for the many rapes attributed to the East Area Rapist spree, due to the statute of limitations, they cannot file rape charges. At the time of this recording, Joseph D'Angelo has not yet entered a plea and is awaiting trial. This case is why we lock our doors at night. Attacked all over California. The community was taken hostage. Brutal homicides. One of the most prolific serial killers in the history of this state, if not in this nation. campaign to help identify the Golden State Killer. December 18th, 1976, just before the start of Christmas vacation, and 15-year-old high school student Chris was home alone nursing a cold when a masked man broke in and attacked her. He blindfolded her, sexually assaulted her, and eventually left. She was East Area Rapist victim number 10, and she never spoke about that night publicly until now some 43 years later. Chris, thank you so much for joining us here today. How are you? I'm great, thank you. I kind of wanted to start with this idea that um, this is kind of your first time really talking about what happened to you on our show and and just kind of overview-wise, why is it that you feel comfortable finally speaking publicly about what happened to you? You know, that's a great question. I, I feel like I'm finding my voice. So for so many years, I didn't speak about it. And now I'm meeting other survivors and I'm hearing other stories. Uh, D'Angelo has been caught. And I feel as though I really, I I want to talk about it because I really would have benefited by being able to do that when I was younger and being encouraged to talk about it and maybe even hearing about other people going through the same type of experience when I was younger. So I feel like it's not just therapeutic for me, but maybe I'd be able to help help somebody, you know, in the future. I think that's great. One of the things that we've talked about was how you said the timing of all of this, the press surrounding GSK, um, the arrest, obviously, of Joseph D'Angelo, and that it couldn't have come at a better time. And, and so I'd like to talk about that. And so we want to start at the beginning. You are known in this series as victim number 10. The news of the East Area Rapist um, really started breaking around victim number eight. But you were still very early on, obviously, as, as number 10. As a 15-year-old, were you aware of the East Area Rapist at the time? No, not at all. So it hadn't really kind of hit your family yet? It didn't hit me. You know, my parents were not, they would not have shared that if they knew. So I'm going to assume that they were aware of the East Area Rapist, but at 15, I was not. So in short, tell us about that night. You were, you were 15 years old and home alone. You said you, you were supposed to go to a dance that night? Yeah. So I was home. My parents actually went to a Christmas party and I had a cold. 
and I was going to go to a dance. It was the Friday before we were going on Christmas vacation and I just didn't feel good. So I decided to stay home and, you know, eat a pizza and put my slippers on and, and um, just chill out. My sister was at work and she'd be home around nine that night. So it wasn't like I was going to be home alone very long. And uh, so I was playing the piano and I actually, I had a friend over and her mom called her and said she had to come home and make Christmas cookies. So I'd already put the pizza in the oven and was playing the piano. She had already left and just out of the blue, you know, kind of like being blitzed, there was a man with a mask standing next to me with his, you know, arm around my neck with a knife pointed at my neck telling me not to move or that he would kill me. That must have been surreal. Yes, that is probably the most terrible memory I have of that night. I think after that, I started to maybe go numb a little bit, but that is terrifying. And I have not played the piano since. Wow. Now, you know, from the victims we've talked to, you seem to have been able to bury this deeper than anyone. Can can you tell us how that came about? Sort of like why you felt the need to not think about it? Well, this was a topic that I knew that was not to be spoken about from the very night that it happened. Um, In fact, my sister and I were specifically told, do not talk about this. And I even went to church camp two days after that and acted as nothing had happened out of the ordinary. My sister was told to go to work the next day. This is for my parents and to not say anything what had happened. And I know this sounds crazy, but even me and my sister never talked about it. So, you know, of course there were times that I did, but the reactions I got only reinforced what I had been told by my parents. People would change the subject or they were visibly uncomfortable. Or the worst is uh, (laughs) when my parents found out that I had said something because they overheard me on the telephone, I was in a lot of trouble. So now that I'm thinking about it, even once after the rape, it was right after the rape, it was probably around Christmas our neighborhood was on the news because it had just happened and they were, you know, it was on the news filming the neighborhood and my aunts and uncles were there and my sister jumped up and changed the channel because she was so afraid they would recognize our house. So I kind of think from those reactions, you know, I learned quickly to read people and what I read is that it is not okay to talk about this and it's not an okay subject. So It was probably at that time that I really began to feel shame. But at 15, I didn't even understand what that meant or why I was feeling it. So anyways, so I switched schools and then we moved six months later and then I switched schools again. And it was a super hard year that followed and it was a very lonely time. So long story, (laughs) let's get to your answer. I don't know how I buried it, but I know why I buried it. I think it was just self-survival. It was just hard to balance what you know happened and what you know you're that everybody wishes it didn't happen, I guess. And so, you know, over the years, it just got tucked away and I tried to live a normal life and it kind of got to the point where it just didn't enter my mind anymore. Yeah, you had mentioned that it almost started feeling like it almost didn't happen, that you talked to your husband about, did this even happen? Yeah, yeah. You know, I just had no reactions to stories of rape. I, I wasn't cautious. I know this is going to sound nuts as well, but I, I didn't lock my doors. And when that subject came up, you know, about other people, I didn't have any reaction at all. And I just couldn't connect at all that that rape 
happened to me? And I couldn't remember details. So yeah, I began to wonder, did I make this up? <laughs> Was this my imagination? Was this a nightmare? And yeah, you're right. A couple of years ago, I remember telling my husband, like, I am really worried that maybe I'm making this up. Like it didn't happen. My like losing my mind here. And I remember him very firmly saying to me, Chris, you were right. Yeah. I mean, you, you were able to bury it and to the point where you created for yourself, you know, a successful life. I mean, you married, you had kids, you were doing well. You have daughters, right? I have one, one daughter and two sons. One daughter and two sons. Did, did you at any point talk about your experience with your daughter as she's growing up and things for her? To, or did you really just separate everything? separated. I did not talk to them. Okay. Now, in 2016, you know, that's when the case it got a lot of renewed attention. Uh, they put up a $50,000 reward offer from the FBI. A- at this point, you're still not talking about this, uh, which is understandable. But h- how did you feel about the renewed interest in the case? Were you excited? Were you sad, mad? What What was going through your head when this thing started getting headlines? I was very much upset. And that was kind of a real reminder that this did happen because I'm getting a letter from the FBI saying that we're going to be doing this for his 40th anniversary. And I was really upset. I I was angry. You know, I haven't had to deal with this. This hasn't been in my life. Now his picture is going to be on a billboard. Oh, no, I was I called them. I wrote them an email and, and I was pretty to the point, and I would say rude, I asked them, do you have a lead? Why are you doing this? Why are you bringing this up for me and others when it's 40 years ago? He's dead. Get over it. <laughs> and, you know, if this is a, a, a way for you to get publicity or marketing, like if you don't have a lead, I don't understand why you're doing this. And they called me. I forgot his name, but Marcus. Marcus Knudsen. Yes, thank you. And spoke to me and was very kind, you know, especially after the email that he just read that I wrote and um, explained that that people were on this case for 40 years. They really wanted to catch him. They feel like maybe enough time has gone by where somebody knows something, you know, they just didn't want to give up and there would be a clue out there and that he was very sorry, you know, for my, my feelings. And that was not the intent. And I began to settle down and apologized and, and understood more, but it was just, it was a shock for me to, to get that letter. Uh, you know, and then, you know, now it's October, 2017 and the me too movement happens. How did you react to that? Now, again, of course, it's in my mind, you know, it's not buried anymore. And I would read Facebook and there would be all this me too, me too. And I just couldn't get myself to write me too. I just, I couldn't do it. So I listened, I still didn't talk about it, but it upset me, you know, because I think at this point now I'm identifying that I am a me too. And I wanted to put that out there, but I think I still felt that shame. I still felt as though this was an off-topic conversation. So I did watch it closely, but I didn't exactly feel connected to that either until there was in December of 2017, I was on a a work trip and they were talking about the Me Too and 
about rape and how it's out of hand and all this attention people are getting and they, they shouldn't be getting that. And, and that upset me. And that was the first time I said, well, let me tell you, I have been raped also. And I don't appreciate what you're saying. <laughs> and I quieted the room. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> well, how did that feel saying those words out loud for the first time? It felt good because I had strength behind me and, you know, my parents have passed away. So that part of don't ever talk about it wasn't there. It, it was at that moment, I feel I realized that this is in my control and I don't have to be quiet. It was scary. And I probably apologize the next day for making people feel uncomfortable, but it did feel good for me to, to say what I had to say. And the world didn't come crashing down upon me. And then Chris met retired Sacramento Sheriff's Deputy Carol Daly and read her police report from the night of the attack for the first time. Chris shares that emotional moment next. Okay, Chris, in January of 2018, you came across a newspaper article that included a picture of an East Area Rapist survivor. And that shocked you. Yeah, so we I was sitting in the in my family room and I don't read the paper. I'm one of those that like to do it online and my husband is an avid newspaper reader. And so I never open the paper. I just leave it on the table for him. And that night he said, "Hey, Chris, there was this article in the paper today that I think that you might want to read." And I said, "Yeah, what was it about?" He said, "I just think maybe you should read it." I said, no, it's okay. If you don't, no, don't worry about it. And he says, I'm just going to go get it. And he told me later, he had actually thrown it away and he went outside into the trash can to get it. And he brought it back and he just handed it to me. And I put it down. And a few seconds later, I picked it back up. I was like, why is he wanting me to read this so bad? And I opened it up and I don't remember the title of the newspaper article, but East Area Rapist, you know, was big in it. And I look, and then there was this rather large picture of a woman telling her story. And I can tell you, I was blown away. I never thought that I would ever see a person that was raped by him because nobody had ever spoken. And here she is telling her whole story. And it's a big story. And I read it again, and then I read it again, and I was like, oh, my God, this is real. This is, you want to talk about surreal, that is surreal. Like, how does that happen after, I guess, 41 years at that point almost of not um, hearing anything or seeing, and, and then here's this picture. So I slept on it that night, and I called, or I emailed the editor the next morning and asked if he would give her my phone number and my name, and that I was a victim as well. Wow. And then you you actually went ahead and you got in contact with that survivor. And along the way, you reached out to Carol Daly, who is a retired Sacramento sheriff detective who worked this case all the way back in the 70s. Now, I know she came by and showed you your police report. What was that like? That day, it was another surreal day. I felt sick before she was coming over. This was such a big deal for me. And I did not know she was bringing my police report when she came over. And um, my sister was here for support. And I was so nervous. I was jumping at noises. <laughs> and my husband came home later. And 
she sat down with us when she got here and she said, I just want to be here for support for you. And she was not on my case. I had never met her before and she had not met me. And she said, so I don't know why I'm here except for the fact that I want to be here to support you. And she says, I did bring the police report and I'll, let, I'll leave that with you so you guys can, you can read it, you know, when you're ready. And we talked about me thinking he was dead. She didn't think he was dead. And my sister had a lot of questions and my husband had questions. And it was just very kind of her to give us her time that day. And then she left, left us the report. Um, and then I thought, you know what, let's just do it. And so I knew neither my husband or my sister was going to want to read that report. So I read it out loud. And that was pretty emotional. Yeah, I can only imagine. At what point did you and your sister start talking about this? Obviously, before Carol Daly came over, but was it years earlier or did the 2016 or the 2017 Me Too movement spark that conversation? Uh, that day with Carol Daly sparked that conversation. Wow. And she later told me um, there were just things that, that were so surprising. Like I had always thought it was a certain person, but I never told anybody that. A person in your life? Yeah. But because I was told never to talk about it, I never told anyone. And it wasn't that person, obviously. But my sister was like, I had a crush on that guy. You never told me? <laughs> and, and she said that she had looked things up on the Internet before, but she thought they were all wrong, that she thought they were lies, that, that I was never taken outside, that all these things that actually did happen that she's hearing in the report, she thought were made up. Because she had in her own mind what had happened and we never discussed it. That's amazing. After all those years. Now, at this point, it's spring of 2018 and neither you, your family nor Carol Daly really were aware of how close the investigation was to a conclusion. Was going through this process just your own personal journey? Was What did you think would happen next? I didn't think anything would happen next. It was definitely my personal journey. It was building that bridge between my sister and I on something that obviously affected us so much and never talking about it. It was me wanting my husband to know what happened so that he wasn't wondering and afraid to ask and for my kids. So it was 100% a personal journey for me. Is at that point that you started sharing this stuff with your daughter and two sons? Yep. The next day, the next day I had dinner with my daughter and then I had dinner with my son and then I spoke with my other son and I felt really good. I felt like, okay, everything's out in the open. And, you know, I told you that I didn't tell my kids, but their father told my kids. Mm. And so they had carried it around all this time, not wanting to ask me because I didn't talk about it and I didn't realize they were new. So after that all was out, I felt like I had connected some ties that needed to be connected and they weren't loose anymore. And I just, I felt, I don't want to say over the moon, but again, this was another day I thought would never happen. Right. Wow. And speaking of days we thought would never happen. So here comes <laughs> April 25th. You find out about the arrest. What's going through your mind at that point? Well, I, what was going, I was a little... I was all over the place that day because I had just met with Carol Daly 30 days before that. So all of this is within four weeks. Cause I looked on my calendar the other day and it was March 23rd that she had come over 
And um, I happened to be at work in LA at a conference and I was woken early by my daughter's text. And it was something like, I think they caught him or you need to call me. And it was early and I was like, I'll just deal with this later. And then I swear it was about 10 seconds later. And I was like, wait, what? (laughs) And I, I picked the phone up and I couldn't get a hold of her. I don't believe. And then Carol Daly called me and then Paige Nealon called me and I was in a whirlwind. I was kind of spun all the way back to that day because over the last 30, 40 days, whatever, you know, yeah, it really happened. I know exactly what happened and he's dead. That's okay. And now he has risen from the dead to haunt me. And I remember very vividly standing in that hotel room, not knowing what to do. And my husband called and I couldn't speak. And he kept saying, Chris, Chris, are you there? And nothing would come out of my mouth. I was shaking my head. Yes. But he couldn't see me because I'm on the phone. And, um, it was a crazy moment. I was, do I, go back to bed and just make this not happen? Or do I take a shower? I'm at training. Maybe I should go to training. And I just really had a a crazy conversation in my head for a a while about what to do next. And um, I felt numb. I was shaking. And uh, somehow I got on a plane and got home. You mentioned that on the plane home is when you were watching the press conference surrounded by strangers. Correct. Again, speaking of like this lonely journey, I, I just picture you on a plane surrounded by strangers going through this intense emotional experience. What was that like? It was exactly what you just said. It was an intense emotional experience. I was crying, middle seat, four people next to me. I had no idea what was going on. And um, I'm watching it. And part of it's a relief because I don't know this person. I've never seen this person. That's always been a fear of mine. What if it's somebody I knew? What if it was my parents' friend? What if it's, you know, one of my teachers, you know? So I was absolutely relieved on that note, but really terrified to see this person that did that to me. It was, I I, I don't have the words to tell you what it was. I mean, I can keep saying the words surreal, but it was a relief and it was very scary for me all at the same time. You mentioned something that, really stood out to me that's very poignant is is that so far that attack to you has always just been a mask and to now see a, a face that's associated with that. It's not something I ever thought of, but that must have been really difficult to now have a face. It was. It actually was very difficult to have that face because he's not this shadow or stranger, you know, ghost or, you know, whatever, like he has a face, he's a real person. But you know, as I'm going through my journey and I'm actually healing from this, having that face has taken the power away from the mask. And I think it's actually helped me progress because, you know, a mask can have anything underneath it. You can see five different people in a mask and, and it can rain terror inside of you. And now that I have a face to that, it's better to separate the mask from the face if that makes sense to me. A mask no longer symbolizes I'm going to be raped as it once did. So yes, it was terrifying, but it's I'm healing from that. I can imagine, I mean, listen, it's one thing to see the photo on television. It's a completely other thing to see him in person at the arraignment, you know, various court hearings. Seeing him like that, has, is it still surreal to you or does it feel more tangible now? 
I would say if, if I were to choose one or the other, I would say surreal because I have gone to all of his courts except for the last one. And I am still, I don't really get a reaction at all when I see him. He is very stoic. He's very not real to me. And he does not bring up emotions of tears to me or fear to me. You know, he's behind a cage. I feel and I fear that that reaction will come as I continue in this journey. But I, I didn't even go to the last one because I just, I don't know the point of it anymore. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, you know, it's your journey. So I, I think every one of the survivors is kind of going through their own thing with this. So, you know, it's also seeing him now, you know, it's 40 plus years later. So I think sometimes, even for me, it's hard to imagine him running and jumping fences and doing the things that you know, the Golden State Killer, the Syria Rapist, the uh, original Night Stalker has known to have done. That's exactly right. He, I can't connect to, to that because it, he looks like a very different person than what he was portrayed to be. And he was 42 years ago. Yeah. When you um, realized, you know, Joseph James D'Angelo has been arrested. He's the accused Golden State Killer living in Citrus Heights right there in that neighborhood that you lived super close to for a number of years. What was that like when you realized just how close he was? That was really eerie. Uh, that feeling of knowing that he could have been behind me at McDonald's or at the same checkout stand at Bel Air or eating breakfast at the same place. That is a thought that still scares me because you, you don't know who your neighbors are and you don't know, you know, by any stretch of imagination of what is surrounding you at any time. And that's a perfect example that it was less than a mile away from me and um, never knew. I mean, you know, not even his neighbors knew, so nobody would know, but, but it, it just was a real caution flag to me that no one lives in a safe neighborhood. You don't know. No one really knows. Yeah. I think for, you know, a lot of us on the outside looking in, I think that's the part that was so scary and that resonated the most because you're like, wow, yeah, I really don't yeah. know my neighbors either. <laughs> you know, it's just, you just don't really ever get to know someone your that neighbors, well. Your neighbors, your coworkers, people, people you think you know inside and out and then get so shocked. Yeah. I mean, during the original episodes, you know, we had uh, Erica Hutchcraft, who's an Orange County DA investigator who literally said, look, we believe this man could be your father, could be your neighbor, could be your coworker. And it sounded really scary. And we're like, really, could he be that? And then with the arrest of Joseph James D'Angelo, who they believe is the Golden State Killer, you're like, wow, he was someone's neighbor and someone's father and someone's coworker and just hiding right there in plain sight. Yeah. Chris attended Golden State Killer suspect Joseph James D'Angelo's initial court dates in Sacramento. And coming up, she explains why she feels justice has already been served with or without an actual trial and conviction of Joseph D'Angelo. Chris, as a survivor of the Golden State Killer, how are you kept in the loop regarding the case against suspect Joseph James D'Angelo? How are you being communicated with and what's the support system that's been put in place for you guys? Well, we are kept in the loop for any hearings. Victim advocates from the DA's office uh, will email us and let us know what is happening when the next court hearing, what they feel will be talked about. They will also afterwards summarize it 
and send that out to us and let us know exactly what happened if we weren't there. And then in addition, they give each of us, as well as our family and our support, the ability to go sit in the court to be, we enter first and are pretty protected so that us getting into the courtroom isn't interrupted and we seat ourselves first. And then once we are seated, then the public can come in behind us. So we're not really being, you know, barraged by the press. They're there in the hallway. They're there outside. That's up to us if we want to talk to them. But they do lead us in and they lead us out so that we can have as much privacy as possible. That's great. Speaking of privacy, um, so both the media and law enforcement, out of respect for everyone's privacy, have referred to the victims and survivors by their number or their first name. You're known as victim number 10. When you first met these other survivors and victims, did did people introduce each other as their number? Yeah. (laughs) And we kind of laugh about that now, you know. Yeah. um, At least for me, I can only speak for me. It's a way to identify because we all are aware of what has happened. And I know for for me, when someone says, hi, I'm so-and-so and I'm victim, you know, whichever number, I will probably already be aware of kind of what happened. Or if I'm not, I can kind of recheck, but we don't have to relive our stories. And I don't, I don't know. There's just a comfort in saying that. And we do laugh about it because I don't think it's really understood by others. Like, why are you telling them your number? But we know how he progressed. And so kind of by the number, we have a good idea of, you know, what happened. And I guess it's a way to empathize with each other without saying, hey, can you recap what happened? And it's just natural. I don't know why, but yes, that's what we do. (laughs) That's great, actually. You know, that way you can move past that. Yeah. And now I know you've talked about how this arrest has turned the victims into a group of survivors. Now, where do you all get your strength from? Is it the communal bonding? All of There's so many of you. Is it seeing the accused in the courtroom? Where do you find that strength? I think it's a common bond. It's knowing that these people understand. And, and you know what I'm talking about. You say, you know, oh, I understand how you're feeling. No, you don't. You know, if you haven't gone through this, you don't know. You can empathize. You can imagine. But with this group of women, we do understand. And Honestly, there's times I need to talk two hours about it, of frivolous little tiny details that I'm still trying to work through my mind. And I can I can talk to one of my friends that I've met, my survivor friends, and they get it. And there's other times, you know, that talk about making brownies. But but there's just that common bond that says we survived. I survived and you survived and you survived and you survived. And if you look at the survivors That's a lot of strength that D'Angelo did not have the power to take from us. And it's invigorating and it is encouraging. And I think it's vital to our healing. Yeah. And there's also kind of a a, a social aspect that has formed out of this, right? You guys are having barbecues and meetups. And what has that meant to you? Well, that means everything to me. The, The first time that we got together, I was in a cloud of just amazement that all of these women were in my backyard. (laughs) I just, I just don't know. I smile ear to ear like that. And, and um, Richard Shelby was here and Carol Daly was here. And 
Todd Lindsay was here and there were family members here as well as the victims. And it just was unimaginable. And it was wonderful. And we chatted and we got to know each other. And there was some talk about rape, but mostly just getting to know each other. And we all liked each other. It was it was really a special time. And we were able to be joined by those, you know, who lived in Texas and South Carolina. And so it just worked out. And I think that was the beginning of our future get together. So now we, we do get together after every court hearing and whether you go to the court or not, you're still welcome to go, you know, to get together and be together and see each other. And I just, you know, we're coming up here on a year and I think that I'm hoping that will continue. Yeah. And, and it's not just the, the rape survivors that, that have formed this group. You've even welcomed, you know, family members of, of the original Night Stalker victims. Yeah. Anyone, anyone that can find healing by us getting together and sharing, you know, our experiences in whichever form it took are absolutely welcome. We've had moms and we haven't had any dads come, but moms and kids and sisters and yeah, yeah, just whoever. That's amazing. Wow. Now, as for the trial, are you happy it's in Sacramento? At first, I was not. At first, I was, again, unhappy. It seems <laughs> takes me a minute to digest this. And again, I think through my therapy and through the continual growing and understanding, you know, what happened to me is what happened to me. It's not me. I think it's great that it's in Sacramento because... I feel that more people can attend. My understanding is the victims cannot attend. Mm. And but you know what? My sister can go or my husband can go. I can be right there in that hallway waiting to hear. So I feel that it probably is a really good thing that it is here because more people will be able to be in attendance. And I do understand that the victims can be in the closing. So we will see when the verdict is read. But now, the reason you're not allowed in the courtroom during the actual trial is because you might be called to testify. Yes, we could be. Although, you know, those that will be already know that. But I think they want to be safe and not run the risk of us being tainted by other testimonies that we've heard in the courtroom, which I understand. We want to make sure this goes off without a hitch. Right. And I think at first, you know, as this case was unfolding, even before the arrest, it was presumed that none of the rape attacks would ever be charged because the statute of limitations was three years. And thanks to some, in, you know, genius legal work between Contra Costa DA and Sacramento DA, they did figure out kidnap with intent to robbery charges on 13 of the East Area Rapist cases. How do the, the survivors feel about that? Are you guys happy that some of those attacks did get charges filed or or is this part of like bringing everything back up again? I, I actually don't know how other people are feeling. I am not one of those that will have been called. I know there's at least one person I've talked to that is very scared of getting up on the stand and having to look at him. And I think that some of that probably goes back to how it used to be, you know, if, if a if a rape victim was pressing charges and they went to court, then it's the rape victim that felt like they were being tried. And things have changed dramatically since then. But I think it is scary to have to be up there and facing him and telling your story and 
I don't know, just the whole experience has got to be hard to, well, it's hard for me to imagine. I don't know how I would feel if, if that were me. I think I would probably be a little bit scared as well. Yeah, understandably so. And I have to say, in his uh, his December court appearance, Joseph James D'Angelo was looking mighty skinny. Are you concerned about his health holding up? No. And I, I what I'm going to say, there will be some people that agree with me and some people that do not agree with me. And maybe this is still, you know, my just wanting to distance myself from him. But no, if his health deteriorates and he is able to leave us early, I'm fine with that. <laughs> I don't, I, he is he is costing us a lot of money. The taxpayers, in my opinion, do not need to pay. What is that, $10 million or something like that? Yeah, I That's think it was, it was $20 million. $20 million. Yeah. $20 For us to say you're guilty, we know he's guilty. I know he's guilty. His DNA knows he's guilty. And I don't personally feel that we should be spending $20 million. So we don't have a choice. So if his health fails and he succeeds and leaves the world, uh, I'm not going to shed a tear for him. And I, I already feel justice has been served. I do. He's in jail. He's not going anywhere. So you do not need a conviction, you know, legal on the books conviction to feel like we've got this closure. We know who it is. And that's the end. Absolutely not. We know who he is. And this is the end. He, he's guilty. Do you have anything that you would want to say to him or to his family? To him, no. There is nothing that I would say to him that he would deserve to hear. You know what I mean? Like he, I would not give him the breath. The family, I would have to think about because I, I do, I do worry about his family and about what that has done to their lives. On, on his birthday, I keep a journal and I remember journaling about you know, happy, unhappy birthday, D'Angelo. And, and, but then I, I start thinking about his family. Like, what is this like for them? This is probably when they would be sharing gifts and having a cake. And what are they thinking? Because they've already been blindsided that their father is a monster and having to deal with that. And now there's these holidays that, you know, are, mean something completely different to them. So I don't know what I would say to them, but I, I do feel that they are right with us in the victim pool. I really do. I feel that they're a victim in maybe a different way, but they didn't ask for this. They didn't deserve this. And they're left to heal. We've talked about this a bit, but all these investigators, and I know you mentioned when the FBI in 2016 kind of put renewed interest in it, that you were like, oh, just let it die already. <laughs> He's yeah. dead. Let's be over with it. Now, looking back and the fact that they did catch this man who was still living a normal life and is now behind bars, who they believe to be the Golden State Killer. Are you happy they stuck with it for this long? Like, what does that mean to you, what the investigators have put into this case? I am so grateful that they did this and that they stuck with it. And I am grateful for the 2016 <laughs> anniversary. You know, it, this has changed my whole perspective on a part of my life that I tried so hard to get rid of. And because he's been caught and because of the services and because of the non-forgiving hunt for this man, I have a chance to heal and to be maybe who I always maybe should have been or could have been. I have a lot of potential ahead of me and maybe I have the ability to help others. And so I have nothing but gratitude and respect for all of the folks 
that have spent so many tireless years hunting him down. Yes, yes. Well, and, you know, thank you. And we offer our gratitude to you to to finding the strength to come forward and tell your story, because we, I do believe that it's going to help other people. It really, It's very brave of you. And I also believe so many people are going to be able to move forward in their own journey because of people like you speaking up. Thank you so much. That means a lot. Coming up next week, the victim survivor stories continue as we hear from Jane Carson, East Area Rapist Victim Number 5, and Carol Daly, the retired Sacramento Sheriff's deputy who worked the original East Area Rapist cases during his reign of terror and who has since become an instrumental advocate for the victims. And for more on the Golden State Killer case, the complete Unmasking a Killer documentary series is available on demand with CNN Go. And you can listen and subscribe to the entire Companion podcast series, including these new episodes, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Biagio Messina. And I'm Joe Finciun. Thanks for listening.